Welcome to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. We're glad you've joined us, and we look forward to spending time again in the Word of God together. We also invite you to stay tuned at the end of today's broadcast for information about additional studies and resources. Thanks again for being with us. It's important to consider where your affections truly lie, and this is never more important than when it comes to spiritual matters. Looking at the church at Pergamus, we'll learn of a precious reward that the Lord has in store for those whose hearts remain loyal to Him. Let's open our Bibles now to Revelation chapter 2 to hear more. All throughout the scriptures in the New Testament, we read that among the true people of God, there is the counterfeits, there are the phonies. Jude nailed them when he said in verses 11 through 13, Woe to them! For they have gone in the way of Cain, and have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feast. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. I don't know what all that means, but it doesn't sound good. (laughs) But they're here. They're here. Peter warned us they were coming. Jude writes two years later, they're here. They have crept in among us unawares. Why? They're able to creep in to a church unawares is beyond me. Uh, I just think because the church today has given itself a spiritual case of AIDS, we have removed our defense mechanisms. We're not testing all things and holding fast to that which is good. We're not discerning anymore. We're embracing everything in the name of tolerance and so on. And this is why the false teachers are able to come in and the false believers. Well, finally, Jesus gives the uh, exhortation and promise. He says in verse 17, He who is an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. Of course, God fed his people in the wilderness with manna. Now, you don't think the Jews are resourceful people. You try to come up with recipes for eating manna every day for 40 years. That's a resourceful people. And they made manna, the manna bread and <laughs> manicotti and, and everything you could think of. They, manna was everywhere. But at one point, they took some of this manna and stuck it in a pot and put it inside the Ark of the Covenant. Remember? The Ark of the Covenant sim- symbolically represented God's throne on the earth. God's throne. Now, of course, the manna spoke of Christ. In John 6, Jesus said, You know, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and are dead. But I am the true bread that came down from heaven. If you eat of my body, you'll never die. He was talking about, of course, that God fed them with the bread of life in the wilderness, but it pointed to Christ. Pointed to Christ. Now, I'll give you some of the hidden manna. That manna was eventually hidden in the Ark of the Covenant, which was the throne of God in the earth. Where is Jesus today? He ascended back to heaven and sat down... Uh, at his father's right hand on a throne and he's hidden because he's in heaven and we can't see him right now someday he's going to be revealed 
When he talks about, I'll give to you if you repent some of the hidden manna, he's talking about himself. He's talking about how that if you repent, you're going to be allowed to enter into my kingdom and you will have fellowship with me. We talk about feeding on the word every day. We're eating the bread of life in a sense. We're feeding on Christ every day in the sense of fellowship and things that we read the word. Well, then we'll see him face to face. And we'll be able to fellowship with him and feed on his faithfulness. You know, taste and see that the Lord is good is the idea. And he'll be reigning visibly from Jerusalem over a kingdom that will cover the entire earth. He's basically saying, if you repent, I'll let you be a part of my kingdom. You'll be able to feast on me, in a sense, every day. Every day. Well, he also says, and I will give to him who repents, who overcomes. He... What does John say in his first epistle, uh, chapter 5, verse 5? Uh, who is he who overcomes, but what? Uh, how, how do we overcome the world, I should say? Through our what? Faith, it says. So it's nothing to do with us, you know, living an exemplary, holy life. Not that I'm putting that down. An overcomer is simply one who truly believes in Christ. And if you truly believe in me, overcome, I'll give you some of the hidden manatee. Also, I'll give you a white stone. And on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Commentators have explained what this white stone is in a variety of ways. It's not important that we understand exactly, but here, I'll throw them out to you. Um, It was a token of acquittal in a legal case back then. So if you were acquitted of a crime, they give you a white stone as a symbol that you were acquitted. It was a symbol of victory in an athletic contest. If you won an athletic contest, often they would give you a white stone, which spoke of victory. It was an expression of welcome given by a host to his guest. So you were invited over to a house. They opened the door. Oh, my friend, come on. Here's a white stone. Oh, well, thank you. you (laughs) Come, you're welcome in my home. You know, that kind of thing. In John's day, it was also used of a secret ballot. You've, you've seen this, where they would have a secret ballot uh, on some issue or some person. A white stone meant yes or accepted. A black stone meant no or rejected. We even have a term today. We say someone is blackballed. comes from that idea. They were rejected. I think what Jesus, and just, we'll just combine all of these because I think they're all good, okay? I think that what Jesus is saying to this church is, look, if you turn away from all the paganism and all the compromise and that Pergamum mindset whereby, you know, you think it's okay to compromise with the world, what harm will it do? You turn from all that and I'll give you a white stone, which means I'll declare you not guilty, victorious, accepted, and welcome in my kingdom or my heaven forever. I'll accept you, but you've got to repent. This idea that I can be a carnal, compromising Christian and still get into heaven. Well, let me say this to you. If you're truly a Christian, even if you're carnal, you will get into heaven. But you know what? Oftentimes that carnality and compromise is a mark of unbelief. You're in a church and you're calling yourself a Christian. But if there's all this compromise and carnality, Paul says, look, don't be deceived. God doesn't mock. Whatever a man sows, that he's also going to reap. He says, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. It's not saying that God can't forgive those sins. And he's not saying that if you're a Christian, you can't even fall into those things once in a while and still be saved. It just means if you're practicing those things still. See, that's the key. Are you practicing 
the same old lifestyle. Because if you are, that's an indication you've really not received Christ. You don't have saving faith. Because even though, and we know those of you who have been Christians for for years now, 5, 10, 15 years, you know you're not all that you want to be. But you also know you're not all that you once were. There is a change. And in your heart, you want to walk with God. You want to be obedient. The person who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, John said, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And, and, and I like to read these letters and apply them individually. All right? Lord, here it is. is if you were, you know, does this apply to me in any way? Have I compromised? How do I measure up, Lord? Does compromise characterize my walk with you more than commitment and devotion? And we have to take a good hard look at ourselves. I think it's beneficial to look at yourself honestly. And Jesus said, if you repent, I'm going to give you a white stone. And on that stone, I'm going to have a new name written. And nobody else is going to know that name but you. You know why? Because those who repent are going to someday be married to Jesus. Here was a church that was married to the world, a compromising church. And Jesus is saying, I, I can't receive you to be with me this way. You're an adulterous church. You're a fornicating church. You're not faithful to me. I want you to be faithful to me. And if you are, someday I'm going to enter into a marriage with you. We're betrothed right now. Someday we'll be married. Now, those of you who are married, you know, you get married, you know, you enter into that level of intimacy with each other. Sometimes couples give each other pet names. You don't go around broadcasting your pet names. There's nobody's business. It's just my pet name for my wife and her pet name for me, and I'm not going to tell you. It's an intimate, no, forget it. It's, a, it's an intimate thing. It speaks of intimacy. It's a pet name, I think, is what Jesus is saying. Because he wants, he desires to enter into a very intimate relationship with all of us based on faithfulness and commitment. He doesn't want just a relationship. He wants romance. He wants a, something deep, something real. And in heaven, we're each going to have a new name, a pet name that only the Lord and us will know. It just speaks of intimacy. Let me just finish by saying this. Unfortunately, as I read this letter, I can't help but think of the church in America for the most part. The church in America today for the most part is a compromising church. It is a church that loves the world, that is trying to be like the world. It's not an antipist church against all compromise. It is an apostate church embracing all. That's the tragedy today. When I see churches that are partnering with the world, that are bringing into their churches doctrines of demons. So we got Christian yoga now. Why? Well, because if we have Christian yoga, we, we kind of, we're kind of like, you know, radical and cutting edge, and, and people will kind of be drawn to that. So you're becoming like the world to what? Reach the world? But you have, you know, Christianized transcendental meditation, which is just contemplative prayer in the church. You have churches partnering with politicians who are for abortion, for homosexuality, for every godless thing under the sun that we're supposed to be against. And they're partnering with the world in some misguided attempt to do some work for God. You know what? It's a tragedy today. 
It's a tragedy today. What did James tell us in James 4, verse 4? And James just cut it straight, man. He didn't mince his words. Adulterers and adulteresses. And he was talking about not being faithful to God. Again, spiritual adultery. Adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You've got to choose this day whom you're going to serve. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve the Lord Jesus Christ and the world, which is the dominion of Satan. He's the God of this world. How can you serve two masters? You can't. You've got to choose who you're going to serve. Are you with the Lord or are you in the world? 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, Paul says, Therefore, come out from among them, and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. And as we've already said, there are apostate churches. There are some people in those churches that are genuine. They need to come out of those churches and find churches that are honoring the Lord and teaching the word. But eventually, the apostate Christian church, all the tares, all the chaff, are going to partner with all the other world religions, cults, and as I said, coalesce into this gigantic one world religion, which in Revelation 17, Jesus is going to judge. So we're moving in that direction. We're getting very close. And I just want to appeal to you guys. You know, this is not a day in which we should be sitting on the fence trying to compromise, trying to have the world and the Lord. It's a day when we need men and women who are going to stand up and say like Antipas, I don't care what it costs me. I will not compromise. I will not dishonor my Lord. I will not mix with the world. I will be faithful to my Savior. I will stand up and be a light. I'm not going to compromise. I don't care if it costs me my life. That's the kind of men and women we need today. Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29, begins by saying unto the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience, and as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants, to commit sexual immorality, and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds." I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessels, as I also have received from my father. And I will give him the morning star. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, this is the longest letter of the seven that Jesus dictated to these seven churches in Asia Minor. As we have already said, there were seven literal churches in the area of modern-day Turkey. And because they focus on the church and really give us a picture of the church throughout all of the church age, we have been really spending a lot of time focusing on each one. This is the most relevant section to all of us who are Christians uh, than anything else in the, in the book of Revelation because it deals with where we are right now as Christians. This is addressed to the church. We're all part of the church. So each one of these churches has something in it that Jesus is addressing that we might find in our own lives from time to time. And so it's good to kind of look at these letters as a kind of a mirror to kind of look at ourselves uh, as we read them to see how we're doing in our walk with the Lord. But as I said, this is the longest letter and addressed to the smallest and most insignificant church of the seven. It just goes to show that you can have big problems in small churches. Sometimes people have the idea that, you know, someday I'm just going to move out to the country and, you know, find myself one of those little country churches and just where everything is just perfect and just going to love the Lord. Well, I got news for you. There is no perfect church. And sometimes small churches can have big problems, as we're going to see tonight. In fact, as we have just read this letter, it's obvious as we uh, have read it that Jesus takes a pretty hard line with this church. I mean, this letter is stern, even harsh. And that was because of the seriousness of the sin that was in their midst. Now, in verse 18, it begins by Jesus saying, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira. Of course, the angel was a reference to the pastor there in the city of Thyatira. What do we know about the city of Thyatira? We don't know much about the city. We know that it was about 30 miles inland from Pergamos. It sat in a valley, which meant it was not really a good strategic location from which to defend the city. Consequently, it never really became a metropolis. It never really became a big megacity because cities and valleys, they were indefensible. You wanted to put a city up on a hill where the enemy had to kind of go up to fight, where you could defend the city from above. Thyatira wasn't like that. And so consequently, they had problems until Rome annexed them in about 190 B.C., I think, and that brought peace to the region, and because they were on a major trade route from Pergamus, uh, from Pergamus down to, oh, what was the other city, Sardis, uh, all of a sudden they became a commercial center. Not a very strong city militarily, obviously, but they went on to become a very great commercial center. In fact, Thyatira was a city famous for a purple dye that Homer even makes reference to in his Iliad. In Acts chapter 16, we are introduced to a a woman named Lydia. And we are told that she was a, a businesswoman from Thyatira, and she dealt in purple dyed cloth. Purple was a color that was really a, a hot color in the Roman Empire. They loved that color. And Thyatira was famous for this dye. In fact, there was two kinds of dye that was produced in Thyatira. Two kinds of purple dye. One for the rich and one for the rest. And they used to really extract the expensive purple dye 
one drop at a time from a little shellfish called a murex. It was a very tedious process, very costly, so consequently only the rich could afford uh, cloth or garments dyed with this purple dye. However, they had a cheap Kmart version (laughs) for all the other folks that wanted to look like the rich, and it was made from the matter root. So this was their claim to fame. Uh, It wasn't really a religious center like Ephesus or some of the other cities in this area. They had one temple to Apollo there, who was the sun god. It could be that's why Jesus uh, chose to address this church using the title, the son of God. The only place in Revelation where that title is used of him. It might have been because it was a kind of a a backhand to the fact that there was a temple to the sun god there in uh, in, um, Thyatira, Apollo. But Thyatira, archaeologists have shown us, uh, was a city that was also uh, famous for its guilds. They had many guilds, all kinds of guilds. They were the forerunners of, or the equivalent of our, of our labor unions today. And they had all kinds of guilds. They have goldsmith guilds, and they had leatherworker guilds, and all kinds of guilds, these labor unions. And the, the problem was, and the, and the pressure, and you have to understand this because it really it's get, gets at the heart of what's going on uh, in this letter that Jesus is addressing to these folks. Um, the problem was with these guilds. If you wanted to be a member of a guild, which meant you got a job and you worked, or even if you had a business that employed people that worked in a guild, you had to pay homage to the, the deity that was kind of like the patron deity of that guild. Every guild had its own god or goddess that was kind of like their patron deity. And every workday was started with a kind of a pledge of allegiance, if you will, to whatever god or goddess that your guild uh, worshipped, which meant also periodically uh, you would throw a feast. Your guild would, would throw a feast for this particular deity, which included, you know, stuff sacrificed to the, the deity, which meant meat then was eaten uh, at the feast, which had been sacrificed. Uh, also, these uh, these times of, of feasting and, and, and worship to these various deities was accompanied with sexual immorality. So they would have temple prostitutes who would come in. And it was a very licentious thing. And here's the problem. If the Christians stood up and were committed to the Lord, they wouldn't pay homage to any pagan deity or they wouldn't be involved in pagan worship or feasts or any of that which meant though they couldn't work now in Smyrna they were they were holding fast to the Lord they were standing firm uh, in their commitment to him which meant they were very poor as we read the letter to Smyrna that church was really uh, going through a hard time financially because they were standing firm for the Lord they were committed to him In Thyatira, that wasn't really what was going on. And that was a concern to the Lord Jesus. And that is why he addresses this issue when he addresses this letter to them. What about the church in Thyatira? Well, as in the case of the churches in Smyrna and Pergamos, the Bible doesn't really record the founding of the church in Thyatira. In Acts chapter 16, as I've already alluded to, verse 14, we read, A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, we know she was converted under Paul's ministry at Philippi. So she was in town at Philippi, no doubt plying her trade, no doubt uh, selling purple garments there, and she comes across Paul, and Paul witnesses to her, and she gets saved. Now in verse 15 of Acts chapter 16, we read that she invites Paul and his group back to her house, 
And they, of course, witness to her whole family, and the whole family winds up getting saved and baptized. It could be that Lydia and her family were the ones that started the church there in Thyatira, even though we're not told that specifically. Or, more probably, it was founded as an outreach of Paul's ministry while he was in Ephesus. Because if you look at your Bible maps, Ephesus is not far from Thyatira. In fact, all seven churches, they lay on a kind of a oblong circuit from uh, going northwest back down again, Pergamus being at the uppermost location and Thyatira coming now back down towards the south. So Ephesus was not very far from Thyatira. So Paul spent three years in Ephesus preaching the gospel. No doubt people were sent out all over Asia Minor, and it could very well be that one of these, one or more, uh, went to Thyatira and began a church there. Now, Jesus opens up in verse 18 to the angel of the church in Thyatira, right? These things says the Son of God, only time in Revelation that title is used of, of him, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day. He set free.